Welcome to 1721, a podcast all about shining a light on the path to authentic unity. I'm your host, Evan Black, and in our inaugural season of 1721, we are shining a light on what the minority sees that the majority cannot. In John chapter 17, verse 21, Jesus prayed that we would be one, just like he is one with the Father, so that the whole world may believe. So today, we're going to listen to learn from Chief Alan Banks, who's going to help open our eyes to the divide in policing. Well, today we have Chief Alan Banks with us from the Round Rock Police Department. Chief, man, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. Oh, Pastor Black, thanks for having me. It's an honor. Man, it is. Uh, it has been so great. I think over the last like seven years of developing a relationship, getting to know you, but also serving here in Round Rock together. Um, why don't you start by just giving our podcast audience a little bit about yourself? What's What's the story of Chief Alan Banks? And it's a, it's a long story, a long testimony. So we'll be here all day if I gave it. But let, just a couple of highlights, obviously. Um, born and raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, knew from the third grade I wanted to be in law enforcement. Um, so from that time forward, I kind of led my life to that direction. You know, I, I grew up in a, in, in a poor environment, meaning my mom was a single mom. Um, once she divorced my biological father, he uh, ended up moving over to the East Coast and uh, didn't have any any contact with them and, and no relationship with them, uh, even to the fact when to when he passed away. So really just, you know, being raised up, uh, you know, in a broken home. Uh, my mom remarried, second husband, when uh, right before teenage years. Um, great man to this day. I call him my uh, my my best friend. Uh him and my mom has since divorced, but he's still a major influence in my life. I took on three boys and, and as a single single man at that age and taking on three boys, man, what a what a testimony he has. That was, a you know, he's my hero and a very, very cool man. But started the police department when I was 21 years old. Uh, again, that was my desire. Worked my way from the ranks of a cadet till 2014 when I retired from Albuquerque as the interim chief of police. And I'll tell you, one of my main, major goals as a as a police officer was really to give back and, and get involved with kids that might have grown up in the same environment, the same area, um, and the same um, obstacles that I had growing up. And so that's really what I wanted to do in, in doing that. I know we'll get into that here in just a few minutes. Um, ended up getting married in Albuquerque. I currently uh, been married now 25 years this year. November wow. 4th, we celebrated 25 years and uh, three beautiful kids. My daughter's 23. I got a son, 22, who, uh, you know, he talks about how he can hoop you in basketball quite often. But uh, and well, then 23. <laughs> I hope he can. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I gave up on that a long time ago. And then I have a 16 year old son as well. So I'm very blessed and so glad to be here. You know, Around Rock hired me in 2014 as the chief. You know, I've been here now now since uh, since then and just been doing great work out here with the with this police department. Yeah. And we're just talking. You said, you know, there's five hats that you wear that aren't easy hats to wear. Obviously, when I'm being a, a chief, um, what, what are those other four hats you were saying? You know, I, I, I'm a black man, obviously, and then um, I'm married to a white woman. Uh, I have uh, three biracial kids. I wear a uniform as a police officer, and then I'm a Christian, you know, and, and, and those are five hats that I put on and I wear every single day. Yeah. And man, what a time, right, for all five of those. 
I mean, oh, yeah. I mean it feels like all five of those are under attack right now in some way, shape, or form. You know, and I have it's it's my testimony, and it, you know, I love to sit and talk with folks. And and as you and I were talking earlier, I said, "Does anyone want to step in my shoes?" You know, and see where I come from or where 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 I've been, and that's what makes it great as a, as a police chief is you hear all the all the stories about law enforcement around the country and and what goes on. Well, it's, it it really starts with leadership, and for me, I have a lot that I bring to this department because of my experiences. And I don't. It's like I said earlier. I want to get get a hold of kids that may have gone through the same things I went through. Um, as a young man and all the obstacles I had to face to get to where I'm at right now and say that you can do it. You don't have to be a statistic. You know, you don't have to be a, a notch or a number and, and you can get through it. You can make it and you too can start telling your testimony of success later on in your life. Yeah. And, th- and that's a great segue into um, first thing that I wanted to talk about on the the podcast. And that is, you know, there's a lot of different policing strategies. I mean, I'm sure you know way more than I know. <laughs> um, and so different departments, you know, implement different strategies. But the one that you've chosen to implement is called community policing. T- tell us a little bit about that. So, Pastor Black, when I first was hired, um, my boss at the time, his name is Steve Norwood, city manager here in Round Rock at the time. One of the things he talked about was getting back to community policing. The agency was doing some of it, but really wasn't uh, delving into what community policing was all about. And really, community policing is a is a police strategy, as you said, and, and it's building the ties and working closely with the community. And what I mean by that is, is really when you talk about enforcement action, not everybody has to go to jail. There's education pieces, there's partnerships, there's relationships. And that's what we do here in Round Rock is, is grabbing, grabbing folks within our community and saying, hey, how do, we, how do we build that quality of life together? You know, and I've often said when I go out and I speak anywhere, and you've heard me say this before, is it's not us versus you nor you versus us, is we got to do it together. And, and our prejudice has to be against crime, not against a person uh, or an individual. You know, we want get to get rid our city of crime. But how we do that has to be very strategic and treating people with dignity, treating them with respect, regardless of who they are, their background or what they do. Um, some people deserve to go to jail, but other people, you know, just the mere fact of our presence or being around them, speaking to them, partnering with them can make a huge difference. And, and that's what community policing is all about. So how have you implemented that? So within Round Rock, we average about uh, 500 events a year. Um You've been part of some of those events, and I'll give you a couple examples. You know, we do our coffee with the cop. Uh, we first started out in 2014 with the cuts for kids. You know, I started out with about 250 people that came through our doors at the PD, which, uh, you know, you guys did a, a spinoff event here at, the, at Faith for Life with the cuts for kids. And it, ours has morphed uh, quite a bit. So 2019, we had 15, uh, 13,000 people that came through our doors. And and what that was is we changed the name of it. It's back to school celebration. And it's really just grabbing our students and our kids and our families that are in need and saying, let us help you um, right before the start of school, help build that uh, sense of self-esteem. You know, we get them welfare, wellness checks, um, checking their eyes, checking their hearing, um, checking their physical um, well-being as well and giving them free backpacks, school supplies, uh, feeding them food, feeding them uh, lunch for that afternoon and just saying, that's the relationship we want with you. We don't want you afraid of us as in law enforcement. We want you to partner with us and we want you to come to us if you need anything. Additionally, 
this this whole events that we put on throughout the year is we really reach out to our business partners, our faith based leaders, and saying these are these are our community members, these are our youngsters, uh, these are our families that are in need, and we need to get a hold of them and tell them they do have a way out. They have partners, they have they need relationships, um, and we're there to help them and, and be a part of that. And and I know that you guys do much more than just events as well. You have that Junior Police Academy. Um, and and 500 times at a minimum where you guys are out in the community. Why do you think that's so important? Well, it, ha- it has to be important because we have to, you know, it's not always always about taking folks to jail. And when you take people to jail, you know, one, that, that's now on the record. Um, and then two, what do we do prior to that to, to, to help them? You know, it's easy to put handcuffs on someone and take them to jail. It's very hard to, to get down on a knee and give a little girl a hug or, or a handshake to a young gentleman um, or say an encouraging word. Because in law enforcement, prior, you weren't trained to do that. And, and it was all about, you know, hey, we're here to enforce the law when we're not. That's old school thinking. Now it's, hey, we're here to keep you out of trouble. We're here to help you through whatever crisis you may be in. Um, and make you successful in life. The last thing we want to do is put a stigma upon you, uh, put a record behind your name. You know, we want we want you successful in our community. Yeah, and I know that you've been, uh, you don't just talk about this, but you and your department have followed through with implementing this community policing. And it's so important for the entire community, but let's be honest, right now, the minority community is at a place where they either feel like they're being policed um, differently or unfairly, um, or maybe in certain cities or certain situations, maybe that's actually happening. So many, <laughs> many white people, let's just call it what it is, they, they don't understand things like profiling or um, what I've heard a lot, you know, DWB driving while black. <laughs> now, Absolutely. I, I don't, you know, I'm white, so I've. <laughs> I'm only taking what I've heard. Clearly, that's never happened to me. But what are we as the majority not seeing that so many minorities are seeing when it comes to policing? You know, you hit it. You hit it right on the head there. And the fact is that people feel that they're being profiled or discriminated against based on their race, their ethnicity. Um, you see it all around the country. You hear about it all around the country. You know, and I, it's hard for me as a chief, you know, because you hear stories and you see stories, um, whether it's social media or mainstream medias, of interactions of law enforcement with our citizens in our community. And when you have a uh, an officer involved shooting, you have a white officer who ends up shooting, you know, an unarmed black man or an armed black man. It doesn't matter. Um, you know, you, you, the stories behind it. So regardless of of the incident, that's somebody. That's a life. That that's that's somebody who has a story. And so our job and why I've worked so hard in, in this police department is try to change those narratives and change those stories. When you talk about, you know, how to open the eyes of the white people of white people to understand, um, sometimes it's difficult because you, you, it doesn't relate to them. You know, my wife is white and these are, these are conversations that we had. And if it doesn't relate to you, then you don't pay attention to it and you don't care. You move on until it affects you is when you start paying attention to it. And, and sometimes we just, we have a, a closed eye to it, a blind eye to it and move on, move forward. And, and so even in, in, when you talk about relational policing and, and community policing, our goal is to open everybody's eyes up. Um, and to, just to say, you know, we're all, we're all a family. 
But until we recognize black and brown is important and we have to understand what black and brown go through, then we're, we're not doing the job that we're supposed to be doing. And, and we have to make everybody aware that uh, there are problems. There, are, there is systemic racism, not just in law enforcement, but in, in everything. And uh, I hear stories after stories after stories, but I'm the first one to say, I got five issues. I don't call them issues. I got, I, I deal with five things. If you want to step in my shoes and that's why I work so hard as, as this police chief in this community to, to make everybody aware. Yeah. I, it reminds me of a, a story I heard of a lady, uh, an African-American lady. Um, we were in a meeting and she said, you know, I just can't believe it. The police have been harassing me. And, and all of a sudden I'm, my eyes perk up. I'm like, what? And she says, yeah, I drove uh, about 10 miles home the other day. And the last three miles, this police officer got behind me and followed me all the way home. And I'm, you know, now I'm like, whoa, like what happened? She says she pulls into her driveway and the police officer just drives by and keeps going. And I think, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, wait, no. <laughs> why, why, do you, why, why, do you, why did you think that he was? following did he stop did he say anything when when you know when you did he did he slow down at your driveway no he just kept going and, and and so i hear stories like that and as a white person who's never experienced anything like that it's really hard for me to wrap my mind around profiling or driving while black or that that police officer was following her because she was black now we you know we have no way of knowing that and so i think for for people who at least used to think like me those kind of stories don't help because I say the odds are he was going home or he was going somewhere else or he was on his route and you just happened to be in front of him. <laughs> he wasn't thinking anything about you. I call I call that coincidental, right? Those are coincidental stories that we, we often get. And you, you, it's funny you say, you know, you being white to you that when you wouldn't even thought twice about it, but here's the narrative. The narrative is, that we hear it and see it all the time, right? It's always in the news. It's always in the media. It's always, we're passing those stories along on Facebook. Um, doesn't mean it didn't happen or didn't mean that, that you know, maybe he was following her. The, the problem is, how do we change that narrative? How do, you know, and everybody has to understand how I feel is going to be different than the way you feel um, because you haven't had to go through that stuff. But then I, I talked to a young black lady or a young black man who tells me those stories and I absolutely understand how they feel. And it could have been absolutely coincidental. They could have been the same exact route that uh, someone who was going through. But you cannot dismiss somebody's feelings uh, whatsoever. And you have to understand where they're coming from. But in the same token, I will tell you, you know, I, I get the opportunity to have conversations with folks who feel that way. And it's just a mere, you know, having the conversations and, and explaining to them how Round Rock works and what we stand for and what we're doing, again, is trying to change those perceptions. Um, the unfortunate, unfortunate thing is reality is perception or perception is reality. Yeah. And um, but if, if we continue that narrative and we don't make change, then we're going to continue to go down this same path. Yeah. And, and I think the other piece to that is sometimes it's not coincidental. I mean, maybe no, not. absolutely maybe, not. Well, I'm not saying anything about here in Round Rock, but, you know, um, I've also had loved ones, my wife, obviously being African-American family members who uh, it wasn't coincidental. And there were real consequences for um, 
that type of behavior. And we see a lot of statistics that, that say, again, not here in Round Rock necessarily, but across the country that these things happen in various places. Um, and it, it absolutely does, Pastor. And, and I'll tell you, you, you know, you got 700,000 officers that are, are sworn as police officers in the United States. You have 18,000 police departments that are, uh, that are commissioned in, in the United States. And I guarantee you not every single one of those are, is properly trained. Um, you have, I mean, just depending where you are in the country, you're going to have people that have prejudice and racism and, and biases that treat this profession uh, the wrong way. And those are the folks that should not be in this uniform. Um, and that's the unfortunate part is because they're the ones that give us a bad name. Uh, and it, it is out there. And you're absolutely right. It does happen. Um, you know, and, and we'll bring up George Floyd, you know, and it's, that hasn't gone away. It's something that we talk about. That was a horrific, horrific event. And, you know, I was probably one of the first chiefs that came out and said something about that. Right or wrong, indifferent, how, I don't care. You know, again, I've worked too hard in 28 years to make continue to make this an honorable profession. But when you have something and somebody doing something like that to, to keep bringing us down, you know, it, it, it's, you know, heartbreaking. But the fact is that we have issues in law enforcement in, in our society that need to be changed. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I so appreciate you speaking out on that and being willing to say some of the hard truths, because I know even just for me, um, essentially what I said online was police have to do better. I mean, you just I, I, I'm not saying I know all the answers, but you look at George Floyd. Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, um, Jacob Blake, you know, Jacob Blake getting shot in the back. Was he going for a knife? I, I'm just, I'm not saying I know the right answers in all those scenarios. I'm just saying there's got to be a better way. And there, there has to, and I, I've often said, you know, we can say names and we can put a lot of names to a lot of incidents. And the unfortunate part for some of those is we don't know the narrative. We don't know the, the, the facts of the case. And some of those we do. You know, and, and I've I always will say and will continue to say as long as, as as I'm alive is one death is too many. You know, we had 272 officers up to this date who have lost their lives in the line of duty this year. 272 officers. That's horrific when it comes to law enforcement. Of those, 43 were killed with uh, firearms. 47 of those automobiles related. Um, and so uh, on both sides, both sides, we need to make a change. And, you know, you're in a position being a faith-based leader, I'm in a position as a chief, is we're the ones that are working hard every single day with our community to try to instill that change. And that's what's important. We're trying to open up eyes to the issues and the problems to change our world. And, and that's our jobs to do. And I, I truly believe it's our God-given calling to, to make those changes. And that's why you and I are sitting here talking today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I read a book, uh, Maybe it's last year. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell is one of my favorite authors. He wrote this book, Talking to Strangers. Um, and in this book, he he talks about this study that I had never heard of before called the Law of Crime Concentration. It mm -hmm. says, especially in larger cities, about 5% of the streets in that city produce 50% of the crime in that city. So you take a map, you look at, all right, here's where all the crimes happened, and, and you find you know, these large concentrations in certain areas. So how, how uh, my question to you is how are these high crime areas policed differently than the other 95% of the areas or are they policed differently? 
And it, it, it just depends on the agency. So that that's actually um, a very good question. And I'll tell you this, and really is you focus on high crime areas, whichever cities is you focus on high crime areas. And the unfortunate part of that in the high crime areas tend to be the minorities um, within that city. And that's what the focus is. And that's what that study was all about. But I'm going to add a little bit more to that, that concern there in, in regards to policing in those, those type of areas. So you have an officer, let's make it, it's a white officer. And you put a white officer in that area and that officer is there for five, six, seven years and he's policing that area. What is he dealing with? He's dealing with the African-American or the Hispanic. He's dealing with the minority for five, six, seven years. Now he's jaded. He or she is jaded. And so now um, everything that he or she does is, you know, minorities commit crimes. Minorities, you know, do this. Minorities do that. So it's already a jaded uh, thought process with that officer. Shame on us and leadership for allowing that to happen. We need to pull that officer out every couple of years and put him or her in a different area. So that's not the focus. And so now, you know, you look at my numbers, if I'm in that area and I've arrested, you know, 200, 300 African-Americans and in two years, then obviously my numbers are going to be high. And then now my, I'm jaded toward minorities because all I think they do is commit crimes. That's where some of the problem lies. And so to answer your question is why is that the case is, is because you want to focus on the high crime areas and, and, and try to reduce that crime in that areas. And so that's where you send the majority of your resources is to, to, fix that problem or fix that issue. Is it right or is it wrong? Again, I can't answer for every city um, and why they do or what they do or how they do that. Um, I think what it should be is is you need to bring in um, uh, more community policing in those areas and have communities uh, members, um, faith-based leaders and, and advocates help you in policing. Not everybody goes to jail. It comes with fixing problems, um, taking care of broken window theories and, and just just the mere fact of relationships that will change the quality of life and change the dynamics of those type of areas are you looking to take your business to the next level are you listening in the right place my name is brandon boone and i'm the co-owner of 13 creatives we're a creative marketing agency where story and creativity are the foundation we help brands and small businesses understand who they are and help define their stories we specialize in photography videography, and digital marketing. Contact us today at www.413creatives.com and just mention 1721 podcast and you'll receive 20% off your next project. Now let's get back to this episode of 1721. Yeah, so I want to go a little off script here because um, again, if we're if we're trying to, in this podcast, help the minority see, or the majority see what the minority often does see and majority hasn't been able to see right here's a question that, I, that i've had and, and i don't know how accurate it is my thoughts on this so growing up i grew up in a uh, predominantly white suburb affluent suburb of atlanta and uh i hope none of the parents of my friends are listening but i had a lot of friends <laughs> that every weekend i mean every weekend they got high in high school i mean just every weekend if you drove near especially this one guy's house that i'm thinking of if you drove near there on a friday night or anytime on a saturday or anytime on a sunday you didn't have to get out of your car i mean you, you almost got contact high i mean you could no. the weed coming out of the house um and you know we never saw the police come into our neighborhood uh, we never saw the police drive by um we you know they never there was never any connection like that at all. 
especially, you know, we, I've read a lot and, and heard a lot about, you know, this war on drugs and the difference in the punishment for crack versus cocaine and, and those kind of things. I said all that to say, here, here's my question. If, if police, and this is more theory, right? Cause we necessarily have this issue in Round Rock, but if the police are always looking in a certain area, let's say the 5% of the streets and they're never looking in the affluent white neighborhoods, doesn't it reason that of course they're going to find more crime where they're looking? If you never drive by to, to, to smell the weed coming out of this house or out of this car, <laughs> that person's never, you're not going to, you're not going to have a record. You're not going to have the interactions with the police. My question is, does police consider that? Is there, I mean, how, how does that happen? Is it just because we're saying this is where the crime is, so this is where we need to put our focus? Um, is there different policing strategies for different areas? And again, this is probably theoretical because Round Rock is probably doesn't deal with some of the same things that larger cities deal with. Yeah, and, and you're you're absolutely right. And you you know you talk about theories. You know I've been around enough to understand that larger cities deal with deal with uh, uh, enforcement differently than some of the smaller cities. But then you got smaller cities that that do things that are absolutely just straight out crazy as well. And I can't always answer for any other agency outside of Round Rock. But I will tell you, you know, part of part of your question is, it does that happen? It absolutely happens. But you also it's a bigger picture too. Sometimes politics plays a part in that, right? You have a, a wide affluent uh, neighborhood that your, your your city council members, your your mayors will tell you to stay out of. Um, we'll tell the police chief, Hey, don't, don't patrol that. Really? Then, but yet, you know, it'll happen. You know, it happens. Um, wow. politics play, you know, you talk about issues. Um, it doesn't happen here in Round Rock. I guarantee you that. And I promise you that, that, yeah. that does not happen. I have a great city council, um, great mayor and an absolutely amazing city manager here that allows me to do my job here as a police chief. And not once has anybody called me and said not to, not to, um, patrol in this neighborhood or that neighborhood. In fact, they hold happens. my feet, they, they hold, hold my feet to the fire. But there's plenty of stories out there um, of, of that type of stuff happening. And that's where, you know, it, it takes leadership, strong leadership to say, I'm not going to do it. We've had a lot of black police chiefs that have quit over this year because they haven't had the ability to do what they need to do and and uh, in their, their police departments to make that change. And so that's the unfortunate part. Does it happen? Yeah, it happens um, in some areas. I, I guarantee it. But the change has to start at the top um, in, in a lot of areas. And again, it comes with leadership. And I'll tell you, you know, I, I work with a lot of um, chiefs in, in this area, smaller agencies, and every single one of these chiefs, you know, have a good, good heart. And they want to try to, they're trying to change that narrative. Um, it's difficult. We're, none of us are perfect agencies. We have our problems. We deal with, with our issues. We'll never make everybody happy, but they're, change change has to happen in in law enforcement wow i i maybe i'm naive i did, i had no idea that a mayor city councilor city manager would would go to a police chief and say basically stay out of these areas that i mean i guess that makes sense i just that blows my mind um okay so there was a, a pew research article that i found that was published in 2019 and you, you probably know these stats, but 
this is uh, this was pretty eye opening for me. It says federal and state prisons in the United States held four hundred seventy five thousand nine hundred inmates who were black, and four hundred thirty six thousand five hundred who were white. In 2017, black people represented 12% of the adult population in the United States and 33% of the sentenced prison population. White people accounted for 64% of the adults in the United States and 30% of the prisoners. Hispanic people accounted for 16% of the adult population and 23% of the inmates. Chief, how can this be? How, How does this happen? Yeah, you know, you got disparate treatment and uh, you'll always have those those high numbers like that, unfortunately. You know, and it, there's one word, it's called discretion, right? And the unfortunate part is you have discretion all the way through the system. And when people say there's a systematic problem, think about it, okay? Let's start at the law enforcement um, side of it. Well, let's even go back. Let's go to the education portion of it. You're, you can get a different education as a black man than you can as a white, white man, right? Um, your family has more money than my family, so I can go to a private school as opposed to a public school. Let's start there. And then um, say, you know, again, law enforcement, you get arrested um, as a black man and you don't get arrested as a white man. So now well, I'm in the even system. If we, even if we back up to the schooling is education, but also, you know, there's a lot of research that shows um, black boys are going to have more encounters, not just with school principals, but even police officers within the school uh, for discipline reasons. So that's introduced to confrontations with police in school. And and you can in some, in in a lot of instances, absolutely. Because what you find is your administration doesn't want to be the disciplinarians. Um, They want to make the police to be out to be the disciplinarians. It should absolutely not be that way. You know, let's look at resource, school resource officers. And I often said the R in that, that title is resource. You're not disciplinarian, not, not, Hey, I, I don't want to handle this kid. So come get him. You know, we're a resource and that resource should be a mentor, coach, trainer, friend, partner for these young, these youngsters to make them successful, not as a disciplinarian that needs to be left up to the school. Now, granted, some kids commit um, heinous crimes and some, some, some uh, felonious, uh, felonious crimes in schools. Well, then that's when the police should get involved. But then again, as we move or fast forward, then, you know, you get you get a kid that's in or a young man or a man that's in the system now, the judicial system. Now you got judge judges that have discretion. So you, you tell them, OK, you, you're sentenced from two years to ninety nine years in prison. Well, the judge decides how many years you're going to be in prison. Right. So now, you know, this this young white person might, you know get 15 years while the young black man might get 40 years. It's, it goes back to our discretion. Um, what we didn't touch on is let's look at the mental health. How many folks are put in, in, in prison because of mental health issues? They were in crisis. And then do we have the resources to help these, these folks or now are they stuck in jail because of the, the mental health issue? So it's a system that, that you can talk about it and go on and on and on about the problems that we have and how do we fix it? We have to start working on it and we can't stick our head in the sand and say there's not a problem. Um, and that's why I work so hard in here in Round Rock to kind of change that narrative. Um, of how policing, you know, I think a lot of, we become, you know, you've often heard the the defund police. That's been the narrative in 2020, yeah. you know, and I've also, I've often said in 2020 is, is let's not worry about defunding the police. Quit making us the default police. Quit calling us for every little thing. Hey, my kid didn't want to go to school today. Who do you call the police? Hey, you know, my, you know, I can't, me and my wife can't get along. Who do you call the police? Um, 
it just now we've we've taken on a um, a role now that we have to put on so many hats, counselors, we're, we're, we're teachers, we're uh, just on and on. And you need, we need to pull ourselves out of that role and get social services involved to help. We need to get counselors involved. We need other services that need to deal with folks as instead of police, because that's, if you get, take us out of that equation, then now the chances of you going to jail are a lot less then we give you other, there's other services to help you through your issues, problems, or crisis. We change those numbers that way. And so those, those numbers that are shocking, where else are you going to put people? Well, you go to jail and then that discretion behind it doesn't make it any better. Yeah. And this whole defund the police um, was, has been eye-opening for me as well. I, I don't think I realized until probably a couple of years ago, uh, all the different calls that a police officer might have to answer. What, what is the solution? Like, why aren't we getting social workers involved? Why, why are the police answering all these different types of calls? Well, it goes back to the word I said, we're the default police. It's the easy button, right? You call some, somebody's in a crisis. You call 911. Let's, let's use mental health as an, as an example. Um, because it's one that I'm, it's near and dear to my heart that I'm really working on and, and, and trying to get changed because I don't think we need to be involved in the front end unless, uh, you know, it's extremely violent where we need to come in and, and, and help. But I'm in a mental health crisis and I need social services. I need somebody to come in and, and help me, whether it's, it's talk me down, give me medications, get me into a facility, et cetera. Well, a family member who can't handle you or doesn't know what to do, the first thing they do is they dial 911 and they send us out here. So now we got to send a, a crisis intervention team officer out to, to assist and help. Well, now you're, you're interacting with law enforcement. Well, why can in the front end is we have someone from social services, somebody who's trained in mental health, who's gone to college, who got their degree, be, be the ones that go out and help this family get this person the help that he or she needs. That's not the way the system is set up. So even in here in Round Rock, we are trying to change that narrative. We're working with the county, um, um, trying to get different uh, um, facilities involved uh, to, to help with with that. And it's the same thing with with our kids in schools. Is why are we become the disciplinarians? We shouldn't. Why do you call police when when a, when a kid fails to do his homework or is acting up in class? It shouldn't be a call to the police. That should be a call to the vice principal, assistant principal counselor to say, you know, little Jimmy is not, uh, not doing what he or she is supposed to do. And, and that's a call to the parents and the parents should be handling that, not law enforcement. So I think too many times we're calling the police and we're handling calls for service. I had 140,000 calls for service last year, 140,000 calls. Um, this is a, this is a, a city of 120, 125,000 people. So I had more calls than I do have population here in the city of Round Rock. Wow. There's a lot of calls for service that, why do I have to respond to you? And last example, and I, I don't want to hog the, the, the mic, but let's even, let's look at auto, automobile collisions, just as an example. So I get in a, a minor fender bender. Nobody, you know, it's a simple accident. Who's the first person that you pick up the phone and call? Who are you trained to call? Call the police. Call the police. Why? So, because we have to come take a report. That report's only for insurance purposes, right? There's no criminal nexus behind it. But what happens is we get there, you're upset because you got in an accident. Um, 
because you were on your way, you had something important to do and somebody ran into you. Now you're upset at the police because we're there because of the whole incident. Now we get into a confrontation and you get in handcuffs. It's still, it's just little stuff like that that we have to look at and, and, and say, why does the police have to be so involved in, in all of these incidents when we really don't have to be involved in a lot of these incidents? Um, and so I, I hope that kind of answered that question. Yeah, it seems like an easy fix, though. I mean, I mean, that seems like if they call for this, you redirect them here. Yeah, uh, and you're right. And, and it seems like an easy fix, but it's not. So let's look at social services. If I call social service, it takes manpower and it takes money. Um, and that's part of the, what the problem is, is that you don't have a lot of social service workers, a lot of social workers to go out and, and assist in this. And that's where where funding comes into play and and getting the government, whether city, state or, or federal government involved in helping creating programs Um to, to be successful in, in helping these. And so that's what we're actually doing here in Round Rock is we're working on a solution to help people with mental illness and in people that are in crisis. So it's not the first contact is with law enforcement. The first contact should be with a social worker, um, somebody who's trained that can handle and, and get you social services. When I take somebody that's in crisis and says, hey, I, I, need, I need a place to go. And I try to find a bed in, in, in one of our facility, mental health facilities, more often than none, I can't get into them because either the beds are filled um, or they, they don't want to take that person for whatever reason. So guess what? I'm stuck and where, where, where's the next place I take them is the jail. Well, that's not the place they need to go. They don't need to go to jail. They need help. And if, if we don't have the resources to help them, then that's why those numbers are so shocking. Um, and so it's, it would think it was an easy fix, but it's not. We call it the F word, funding, right? It's funding, funding, funding. And, and making sure we have the resources and the availability of folks to help those in need. Yeah, that's, that's so, um, that's good because to me, it's, it seems simple. It's, <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was, you know, I promise. You have all the relationships to be able to say, you know, I mean, you wouldn't want to say that person call somebody else, but, but your operator just direct that instead of to an officer, to another department or another agency. But I guess, I guess these things are not that simple, right? No, it, they're not. You know, um, I, I've so appreciated uh, not just the community policing um, that you've implemented, but uh, the, the training that you've given your officers and how you guys go above and beyond what's required. And also, and I don't know that this is new, but it obviously been magnified uh, over the last several years and in, in training on diversity. Why, why do you think it's so important for police officers to be trained in, you know, cultural diversity um, in things like identifying someone that's going through a mental health crisis? Why is training so important for our police officers? Man, good question. I appreciate that, Pastor. And I, I think training is important because you have to know what, what to handle and when to handle it and how to handle it. And on each and every every scenario is going to be different. And if, if I put an officer in a position that they don't know how to handle, I failed both. I failed the officer and I failed our citizen. And so training has, there has been emphasis on training when it comes to cultural diversity or diversity and cultural awareness. If, if I go into a house that, uh, um, Hispanic house and I don't, and, and I don't know the fact that the male figure in that house is, is the figure that I have to, I'm supposed to talk to now that that's going to lead to a confrontation um, if I go to a house of, of somebody who's Asian and I'm supposed to take off my shoes, um, 
then again, that might lead to confrontation and I'm not going to get the results that I want to get. So we have to train our officers on, on those type of scenarios uh, and make them aware of how to handle those situations. Even when it comes to mental health, uh, it's how do I handle those? So we, we no longer, very, very, we say no longer, but very rarely will we do um, the scenarios where we're looking at a screen and interacting with the screen. We try to do live, real, real life, real based scenarios at our training facility. We have a $30 million training facility. That's absolutely uh, amazing to where we, we can, we have our own city set up on the, in the backside of it to where we can actually do practicals out there. We'll bring in people from our community. We'll bring in volunteers and we will in, we'll act out real life scenarios to train our officers. Um, and it's very important that they understand the diversity of our of our community. More importantly with that is I have to hire folks that are diverse and I have to hire folks that look and mirror our community in, in itself um, because we have to understand um, within our culture of law enforcement how it's important that we understand the culture of our community and what they look like, um, what they believe in. Um, how they act, how they react, et cetera. So we, we're working real hard here in Round Rock to mirror our community when, when it comes to diversity. And that hiring is not always easy, especially right right now, right? Well, that's kind of a yes and no question in that. And I'll tell you what, our, our, our hiring process is not easy because I'm in the position where I can be very, very picky. Um, by word of mouth, we have a very, very good reputation. And so we have a lot of people who are trying to hire on our departments when we have positions that are open and I won't put anybody in those seats and in those vehicles just because, you know, I can, I, I put folks in there that have the heart, the desire, the passion, and, uh, most importantly, the, com- the compassion to be a police officer and work with the citizens of, of Round Rock. And I, again, it goes back to leadership is, you know, I, I look at backgrounds. I make sure that we we truly do a uh, investigate backgrounds of folks that are coming into this department. I just don't hire to hire, and that's part of part of some of the problems that I've seen um, in in leadership. Is we'll just feel we want numbers. We want numbers, so we'll hire anybody regardless of the backgrounds. Some of those I call gypsy cops, and it's cops who run from other agencies um, because they're in trouble or they've had issues and they run to another department. They're there for a few years and they get in trouble and they run to another department. And so um, we need to do a better job in weeding out those gypsy cops and, and put folks in these seats that deserve and have the right to be in these seats and wear these uniforms. Yeah, and I've heard you talk about that, and you you have a great um, solution to that, which again, to me, just seems so simple and just create this national database. I mean, <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I, again, like it, it's, it always sounds simple, but it, you know, it's, it's always the bureaucratic process, right. And the politics right. behind it. And I'll tell you, Congressman Carter, um, he's been working on that, um, with the folks out in DC. Uh, I'm a huge supporter of that. Um, I'm, I'm hopefully we'll be working with the state and, and maybe we can get some change in regards to that. But, um, basically what it, what it is, is, is a database and you're in that database, you get terminated, or if you quit in lieu of termination, or you have disciplinary history with whatever agency that is on a database, um, and it'll stay on there for 10, 15, 20 years. That way, you know, if I'm hiring you, I can go to that database. Have you been an officer such and such before? And, and, uh, if I find your name, I can actually see what you were terminated for, what you, why you resigned in lieu of termination. You know, and a part of that, and the reason I was really strong on that in the beginning is I can't send my officers to Hawaii. I get an, a, an officer from Hawaii wants to come down. 
everybody will want to go to Hawaii, but I can't afford to send somebody up there to do a background. So Hawaii might be absolutely, and I'm just bringing Hawaii as an example. It could be anywhere, but they, they, they'll tell me all the great stuff about this officer. They won't tell me the negative stuff about this officer because they want to get rid of him or her. Right. And so what you're finding out is once they're gone, you wash your hands of it and you're like, okay, our problem's gone. Now I've, I've just inherited your problem. That's what the issue, that's, that's where the issue lies. Now it turns into this, this officer was, was racist. He or she was, you know, had, had, was profiling, they're terminated for profile, whatever. I inherited that because I didn't do enough of a background to weed them or, 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 or weed them out. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, one of my, uh, my consistent prayers for you over the last couple of years is, is around this hiring just because of the process, because of how important it is, because of how much I, I believe diversity is needed yet. It's, you know, you can hire out of the applicant pool that you have available to you. So if there's only white males that apply, it's going to be really hard to have diversity. Um, even though you've done an amazing job of trying to get through that. I want to, I want to quickly, and then we're almost done. We'll wrap up, but I want to go back to this training piece just for yes. a moment. Uh, it reminds me of a story after, and I think I told this on a, a previous podcast too, but you know, my wife and I got married and we come home from our honeymoon and, we're talking and she's telling me about her day. And, and by the end of that, she was, I thought she was yelling at me. I thought she was mad at me (laughs) and and it wasn't at all. It was just a, you know, I I know now really almost everybody in her family, once they start telling a story or talking about something, they just get more excited and get get animated. They get animated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and if we associate that to some of the things that you were saying, you know, if you walk into a Hispanic home, you need to know some cultural things. If you walk into an Asian home, you need to know these cultural things. There should be, that level of training, but there's also a group of people, probably white people that would say, Hey, look, you got to put your culture down. When you come in contact with the police, you can't get loud. You can't get offended. If they don't take their shoes off, you can't get offended. If they talk to your wife, like suck it up and be <laughs> respectful. Right? Like what, what would you say to, to somebody who's like, no, those things should not cause conflict. And and they shouldn't, but they do, right? And it goes back to what you say, man. It it sounds so easy, it sounds so easy, but it, it's it's really not. And we, unfortunately and fortunately, train or have to train on on those type of uh, situations. Um, in some cases, I think a, a lot of it has to. We have to take ownership of our own home. And me as a father, I've grabbed my kids, all three of my kids, and I've told them what their consequences are. I told them right from wrong. I told them, you know, what to do when when um, they're around police or get involved or interact with law enforcement. That's my responsibility as a father to do. Um, and if I don't do that, then shame on me. And I should not be complaining when, when my kids act out um, because I didn't teach them right from wrong. And so when it comes to training in, in regards, we have to train for every type of scenario. We're not always going to hit every single one of them, um, but we're going to train very hard. Uh, one of the things that I did, and I failed to mention, I apologize, is I have a training advisory committee. There's a wonderful pastor by the name of Evan Black that sits on that <laughs> training advisory committee. Uh, so basically what that training advisory is, I brought in a group of, of folks from within the community and from all different areas, uh, faith-based leaders, the or, or different religions to um, city council members. I have people within our training staff and I'm looking to, to even expand that even more because I want them to come in and, 
and help us develop our training curriculum every single year to say, you know what, how come you're not looking at this or, or, Hey, that's a great idea. We like that. We like the, the direction you're going because it goes back to what I said earlier. It's not us versus you, no you versus us. We have to do this together and we're not always going to get it right, but we are going to work very hard on trying to get it right. And so um, whether you're black, brown, white, it doesn't matter. We work with you. Um, you. I didn't say for you. I said we work with you, in which we have to work with you to make a, a better round rock and, and continue to build that quality of life in, in everything that we do in law enforcement. We're not perfect, but we're going to work real hard to make sure that you're proud of this, this police department. Yeah. And that being on that committee has been um, amazing for me. Just I've seen some of those live trainings and uh, people just don't you don't know what how you would respond until you're in that. I mean, just being in the room with the officer going through that and, you know, there's no real bullets in that gun. You know, right. You know, right. It's, um, it's it'll get it'll get your heart jumping. It um, does. It really yeah. does. OK, so so from all of this and maybe even something that we haven't talked about. Um, and I, and I want to ask you this, this is kind of uh, beyond what this first season we're really talking about, but I, while I have you, I'd love to know what you see as the three biggest challenges that we need to make in policing to create equitable and safe communities. Uh, I think the first thing is, is hold our leaders accountable, hold your chiefs accountable, hold your city administration accountable. Uh, make okay, sure so you're let me, doing. Let me pause you right there. How, if you're listening to this podcast, how do you do that? How can someone hold their chief or their city council accountable? So, be a voice. Speak up. If if you feel your police department isn't doing what they're supposed to do, then speak up. Uh, come forward. Um, I say, you know, if an officer does something great, make make sure it's known. You know, send send it through internal affairs. Send it to the chief. If an officer is doing something that you feel is inappropriate, the side of the road's not the the, the place to argue. File a formal complaint. Uh, make sure the chief is is aware of that. And if the chief is not uh, doing what he or she should be doing, and you're not satisfied with that, then go to your city council, go to your city manager, go to your mayor, and have those conversations. Um, don't be afraid to do that. Speak up. We have to, as as leaders, we have to be held accountable, and our feet need to be held to the fire. Um, really, that simple. And we're in this position, you know, for a reason. And sometimes comes uh, comes. Um, the hard part of it, and that's listening to the criticism. Um, so there's criticism along with praise. So I think that's first and foremost. Second is, again, get involved. How, how are you going to get involved? Uh, you know, volunteer at your police department. Go to Citizens Police Academies. Get your kids in junior police academies. Go to events that the, your law enforcement put on, you know, throughout the year. Um, and if they don't, find out why they're not. Because again, you guys have to do it together. And if you don't understand your police department and, and what it's all about, um, then I, I think you're, you're both in a bad position. Um, and I think really the third thing is, is if you move into the community from outside this community, uh, again, get to understand your law enforcement agency. And I think that's one of the hardest problems I have is people who come in from other states that don't have a relationship with their police department and don't understand all the work that we put in to try to build that relationship, right? Community policing. And um, so you bring your bias and, and your your problems and issues that you have with your, your former police department. And we're just not like that. We're, so, you know, start those relationships, get involved, um, be active with your, your police department and hold, hold, 
hold your police department accountable as well, as, as well as give them praise. Cause I like, I like uh, lemon cookies, chocolate chip cookie, bring them down. I'm good. With it. it's, it's good. It's good. Uh, well, chief, man, I, I so appreciate uh, what you've done here in round rock and I appreciate your transparency. Um, you, you know, you not only are willing to do podcasts like this and speaking opportunities, but you know, you will have, <laughs> I, I love these meetings too. You'll, you'll call a meeting and invite city, you know, open it up really, but in, invite city leaders to come and you'll go through your police reports for the year and your statistics and let us ask questions. And, um, and that's given me as a, not just a pastor, but as a father, uh, it's given me a lot of confidence in seeing a police officer at a gas station and taking my boys who don't look mixed. They look black, taking them out of the car mm -hmm. and taking them up to that police officer to say hello, to be a part of the community policing and the community um, relationship. And then also it's given me confidence, at least here in Round Rock. I don't, I don't know if we travel, you know, um, <laughs> to, to have what, what I've learned to be the talk, you know, as again, growing up as a white guy in the suburbs, I never heard of the talk until I married my wife, but the mm -hmm. talk, about how to handle interactions with the police and what my kids should do and, you know, all of that. And, um, and be confident that if they follow those rules of respect, that they will come out of that situation just fine. And I, I just have too many friends across this area and across the country uh, that are black fathers and they, they, they don't have confidence that their kids are going to come out of those scenarios, even if they do everything correctly, they, they don't have confidence that they're going to come out of those um, safe. And so I, I wanted to um, have you on because I, I think you're doing a tremendous job, but I also wanted to have you on because I, I want people to be able to see that there is a way for police and community to, to be working together and for there to be a level of authentic, genuine peace. Um, and I also wanted people to be able to see that just because you don't think that police officer is following you, every police officer, you know, how many did you say? 700,000? 700, 700,000. That is correct. 700,000 police officers. So if we think that all 700,000 are not biased or discriminatory, and if we think there's no racist cops, then, then we, we are mistaken. <laughs> just sheer numbers. It's just a matter of how are we going to respond? How are they going to be handled? Are we going to hold uh, leadership accountable? Are we going to get involved? Um, are we going to have any type of relationship with our law enforcement? So chief, thank you so much for being on this podcast. Is there any, any, anything we didn't talk about that you want to talk about? Man, I, I talk all day long. I, I, I love I love law enforcement. I love what I do. You know, I'll just touch base super quick. I did help co-author a, a pamphlet and a booklet called Be Smart, Be Safe that we give out to our, our youth, um, how to interact with law enforcement. And, and it tells us how what we're supposed to do in law enforcement and what you're what you're supposed to do as a, as a citizen, whether it's being pulled over or just stopped in the corner. And again, it's just it's, it's just a, again, a little thing we do just so we, we have those relationships and, and we're not perfect. And I said that over and over again, we have our problems, but don't be afraid to, to get a hold of me. Um, if, if you have an issue with the Round Rock police officer, 
Um, and don't be afraid to get a hold of me if you have a great encounter with the Round Rock police officer. And I, I think that's just as important. But uh, I'll continue these conversations as long as y'all have me. Um, it means a lot to me that you allow me to come and talk on your podcast and appreciate you more than you know. Appreciate it, Chief. How can people get in touch with you, whether uh, whether they're listening around this area or, or if they're – I know you're on Twitter. I am on Twitter. on Twitter. At Chief Allen Banks on Twitter, at Chief Allen Banks. Also get a hold of me. Uh, my email is abanks at roundrocktexas.gov. And you got to spell it all out. So it's at it's abanks at roundrocktexas.gov. Or you can call me at 512-218-5527. 512-218-5527. I'm not afraid of a conversation. The only conversations I don't like is the ones we don't have that you want to have. Man, that's so good. So, Chief, do you do your own Twitter? I, I do my own Twitter. I do. <laughs> it, it's crazy, but I do. That's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. Man, Chief, thank you so much again. It's such a pleasure. Um, I, I so appreciate you. And Round Rock is better because you are here and because you're Thank leaving. you. Thanks, Chief. Thank you. Well, it's that time again, the segment that you've been waiting for called What in the... I know what you're thinking. But this time we're going to start with what in the word, what in the word, Romans chapter 13. Let me read to you uh, verses one through four. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, a lot of times people will take this verse or these verses, and they will tell us how we need to obey those that are in authority, specifically uh, applies to police officers. And while this is true, at the same time, this is written with the expectation that policing and those that are in authority would be doing it righteously. We do have a responsibility in how we respond to interactions with police. And at the same time, our governing authority has a responsibility to be good and to treat us fairly. So I love the conversation with Chief Banks because we hit this from both sides and hopefully we're able to open your eyes, uh, not just to some of the things that maybe we're not seeing as the people of the majority um, that maybe the minority are seeing, but also seeing it from another side as well. And these answers are often not so cut and dry. So the next part of this segment that you've been waiting for is what in the, what in the world, what are some other resources out there in the world that can help us continue this conversation and get a little better understanding of what we talked about here today. For me, I love the book talking to strangers by an author named Malcolm Gladwell. And this book has many different stories in it, it touches on many different subjects, but it centers around policing in many ways. And so it starts and ends with the story of Sandra Bland, also gives us some other stories in there. And it ties together this idea that a lot of our problems are because we, are, we do not handle talking to strangers very well. We are not good at talking to strangers. I'd highly encourage you to get that book, read that book. It's not only informative, um, it's also very entertaining. 
Uh, you'll probably laugh. You'll probably cry. Uh, but you should definitely be empowered after reading that book and have a greater understanding of some of the issues in policing for today. Well, that does it for this episode in season one of 1721. Again, thank you to Chief Allen Banks for helping us on this journey to authentic unity. And thank you for listening. If you haven't already, make sure that you subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. In our next episode, we'll listen to learn how lending is dividing us. 